You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 6th day of August 2012. I'd like to welcome everyone back to the program and invite you all, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, that's C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com, where you can find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, as well as all of my articles, interviews, and videos that I've created and conducted over the past five years, available completely free for download and commercial-free thanks to the subscribers of The Corbett Report at CorbettReport.com support. And once again, I do rely on your support out there, so please consider signing up for the newsletter or purchasing a DVD to help keep this independent media free and commercial free. And also, I'd like to let people know that uh, on the note of what I was talking about at the beginning of the episode last week, I am going to be a guest on the Radio Liberty program with Dr. Stan Monteith again this week and every week for the foreseeable future, as I now have a standing appearance on Radio Liberty. That's at 4 p.m. Pacific, that's 7 p.m. Eastern Time, and you can work out what that is in your own particular time zone if you happen to not be in those time zones. And uh, Radio Liberty is available on the GCN live streams, stream number three to be precise, so you can listen via that link. And once again, I'll put the link in the show notes so that you can listen. If you are catching this on Monday, I will be there at 4 p.m. And uh, also, I am working on setting up some other interviews with on some other programs. Uh, they're, they're not hammered down exactly what time yet, but I will let people know before I go on air on any individual program on Twitter. So if you want to follow what my latest uh, media appearances are, please go to twitter.com and I'll make an effort to put a note up there before I go online with anyone who happens to be broadcasting. And on that note, we have a ton of information to get through as always. So let's get to today's episode. Welcome to episode 238 of the Corporate Report podcast, Meet the Corporatocracy. Corporatocracy itself is a term that longtime listeners of the Corporate Report should be familiar with, if from no other source than episode 79 of Corporate Report Radio, Against Corporatocracy, which aired in February of this year. But even if you don't know the term from that source, or indeed from any other source, you should be able to derive its meaning from its etymology. So that, for example, we have autocracy from the Greek auto and kratos, meaning rule of the self, or rule by oneself, in which case it refers to the to that type of government whereby one tyrant rules over everything. Or we have democracy, Demos, of course, being the Greek term for the people, so it's rule by the people. We have uh, plutocracy, the rule by the wealthy, from plutos, the Greek word for wealth. Or uh, we have theocracy, the rule by divine guidance, or more accurately, rule by that subsection of society that claims to be guided by divine authority. Uh, We've even had the term kleptocracy suggested in recent years to describe those types of government whereby the thieves get into power and basically plunder the wealth of the people for their own purposes. And unfortunately, we've seen that in far too many societies. So there's kleptocracy. But uh, corporatocracy, of course, refers to rule by the corporations. And by its very nature, of course, this is a rather relatively new term and refers to a type of governance that really couldn't have theoretically even existed really pre-20th century, it really started to come into power in the 20th century as the corporations themselves rose in power. And the, I think the, uh, the obvious example of this is the fascism of the Italians under Mussolini. And of course, Mussolini was the founder of the term fascism, and he was the one who has famously declared that fascism would most uh, accurately be called corporatism as in a type of rule by the corporations. Well, that in some way goes to obscure the real nature of what Italian fascism and German fascism and other forms of fascism were really about, and that is that they were outgrowths of socialism applied at the national level. So there was the nationalization of various industries, and it was really just a form of socialism, and that 
fact has been obscured in our political discourse in recent years. But regardless of that, I think it might put too much emphasis on the uh, the philosophical underpinnings of Mussolini's fascism or the, the economic theory underpinning Mussolini's fascism. It might give that too much credence to say that there was really a, a political philosophy or an economic theory of any kind behind the Italian fascist movement or even indeed the German fascist movement. Uh, what we can see most clearly coming out of the the fascism of the 1920s and 30s there in Germany and Italy was really, it was more of an ad hoc process so that it was not clear by any means when Mussolini came to power whether or not his fascism was going to be pro-labor or anti-labor, pro-capitalist or anti-capitalist, pro-monarchy or anti-monarchy, whether it was going to even think of public debt as a good a public good or a public evil. And all of those things seemed to come along as almost ad hoc responses to the, the facts on the ground from Mussolini's administration. And uh, that's a point that was made in, in with, I think, some degree of articulacy by John T. Flynn uh, in a art, well, a, a part of a longer book that he wrote in 1944 that was published as a daily article on Mises.org back in 2008. I'll include the link to that as well as the audio version of that, uh, the reading of that article, as it's, uh, I think, very, very in-depth in and interesting account of Mussolini's fascism and what it was really about and how it really wasn't a well-developed or coherent theory of corporatism or anything else. It was not a political philosophy or economic theory of any kind. It was really more just an ad hoc response to what, uh, what things were on the ground there in Italy. But the point, I think, really is that corporatism can take many different forms and can look in different ways in different times and in different localities, so that Italian fascism had similarities but certainly was not identical to German fascism, etc., etc. There, there have been different types tried out over the years, and we can even see that uh, on it's not so definitive to say that any one particular government or polity is a autocracy or is a democracy or is a theocracy or is a corporatocracy. I think there's a mixture that applies to, to a lot of different forms of government. So it's not necessarily an all or nothing proposition. But I don't think I have to go out on a limb too far to say that corporatocracy is at least one of the governing modes of the current form of well, the Western democratic political system that we enjoy in our free Western democracies, quote unquote. And uh, probably nowhere more so apparent than in America these days. And there are a lot of things to say on that front and how that uh, idea is put forward by various parts of the phony left-right political spectrum in our current political discourse. But before we get to that, let's tease out a little bit more carefully how it is that corporations can be seen to be part of the ruling power structure. Uh, how, what what does that even mean for corporations to be colluding with or even governing the country itself? And what types of things do these corporations do and for what ends? Well, the obvious example, the example that everyone would cite would be the German fascism uh, under the Nazis and how the German war mas machine was built up by companies which have gone on to uh, to really propagate themselves and their their heads have gone on to to uh, serve on the boards of various other corporations probably no no more apparent than in the company known as IG Farben and uh, IG Farben has a very interesting history and very much part of that Nazi war machine that helped to enable the Nazi war atrocities and I will let you do your own research into that, but let's just take a moment to remind ourselves of just how seriously the world took IG Farben's uh, uh, part of in that World War II atrocities, how seriously that was taken at the time, to the point where the IG Farben heads and many of the people involved with that corporation were charged at the Nuremberg War Tribunal. The crimes with which these men are charged were not committed in rage or under the stress of sudden temptation. They were not the slips or lapses of otherwise well-ordered men. One does not build a stupendous war machine in a fit of passion, nor an Auschwitz factory during a passing spasm of brutality. What these men did was done with the utmost deliberation and would, I venture to surmise, be repeated if the opportunity should recur. There will be no mistaking the ruthless purposefulness 
with which the defendants embarked upon their course of conduct. That purpose was to turn the German nation into a military machine and build it into an engine of destruction so terrifyingly formidable that Germany could, by brutal threats and if necessary by war, impose her will and her dominion on Europe and later on other nations beyond the seas. In this arrogant and supremely criminal adventure, the defendants were eager and leading participants. In conquered Poland, Ambrose was shown a town where one of Himmler's largest concentration camps had just been built. The town was Oswiecim, known to the Germans as Auschwitz. Ambrose found the site otherwise suitable and was particularly interested in the possibility of using the concentration camp inmates to erect the plant, all of which was reported to the other defendants. They agreed, and construction of the Farben Auschwitz plant was promptly undertaken. What happened at Auschwitz during those years will later be set forth in some detail. Himmler, for a price, furnished the defendants with the miserable inmates of his camp, who slaved and died to build the Buna factory. Well, the IG Farben trial, as it's known, was the sixth Nuremberg subsequent proceeding, and it began in August of 1947. It ran until June of 1948, and ultimately ended up in the conviction of 13 of the original 24 defendants in that trial, who were all members of IG Farben and were uh, part of that company, and in some way were found to have aided in the Nazi war uh, atrocities and war crimes. And those 13 defendants who uh, were convicted of those crimes ultimately served anywhere from one and a half to eight years in prison for their part in building up that Nazi war machine and enabling those war crimes, which is an important historical precedence and a very important idea to be cemented into international law for whatever that's worth, that idea. But uh, it is an interesting precedent to have in the, in the case history because it does show that those people who are part of the corporate st structure which underlies a war crime and a war atrocity are every bit as much culpable in their own way and their own part for that war crime as the people who are in the positions of government who are signing off on the orders themselves. So a very interesting and very important part of the Nuremberg proceedings. Although it is questionable if this was anything more than really a slap on the wrist for some of those involved, for example, Fritz Termier, one of the people who was uh, convicted in that trial, ended up in the 1950s going on to be a member, a board member of... Bear, that pharmaceutical company which exists to this current day, and if you cast your mind way, way, way back to episode 10 of this podcast, you might remember, I believe it was episode 10, maybe episode 9, Big Pharma Loves You to Death. You'll remember we covered in that episode the, um, the fact that Bear knowingly shipped HIV-tainted Factor VIII medication to hemophiliacs in Europe and Asia. And uh, once again, just these companies have these absolutely horrific backgrounds and are continuing to take part in absolute atrocities. What else could you say on, on something like that? And, um, and this is all very important, and I hope people are looking into Bayer and IG Farben and, and the linkages there and the history of World War II and the Nazi war machine and the corporations that undergirded that war machine. All very important, and I hope people are doing their own investigations into that. But today I want to take a look at how this transfers to the American context, because it's one thing for us to, to look at, for example, the Germans or the Italians and those fascist regimes and the corporations that, that underlied what they were doing or was part of that governing structure. But it's another thing to recognize that the same types of congruences and, and linkages and interlocking factors between corporations and government that existed in those fascist states very much exists in America from the, 19, the early 1900s and certainly today. And there are very different ways that people look at that from the controlled paradigm, political paradigm these days, which we'll get into later. But first, let's take a look at some of the historical uh, facts to back up this rhetoric. So we're going to turn to something called the Nye Report, which was the findings of a special committee on the investigation of the munitions industry that was assembled by Congress in the mid-1930s. And this committee is very interesting. It was basically tasked with looking into the ways the munitions industry was 
culpable, at least in part, in the spreading of uh, war sentiment among the American public and in fostering an environment whereby the United States foreign policy would favor military intervention in a number of conflicts, including, of course, in World War One. And this is a very interesting part of history. I haven't really heard anyone else talking about the Nye Committee or the Nye Report, so I will include in the show notes for today's episode a link to both the committee background and, of course, the report itself, so you can go and read through it. And one of the most interesting things I think about this committee is the fact that it was eventually shut down because the, uh, the it started to ca- cast uh, aspersions on the memory of the beloved Woodrow Wilson, President Wilson, who was the president when the United States was drawn into World War I, and that the committee was starting to find the evidence that w- Wilson had been holding back pieces of information from Congress, deliberately holding back information from Congress in order to get Congress to go along with getting the United States into World War One. And when that happened, certain congressmen were uh, absolutely livid and just said, well, we have to shut this down. You can't, you're, uh, you're dirt daubing the sepulcher of Woodrow Wilson. So uh, very interesting, especially now that we know that Woodrow Wilson was, of course, backed by Colonel Mandel House, Edward Mandel House, who eventually went on to found the CFR, and all of the linkages with the banksters behind that, which brought the uh, the United States into World War One. We looked at that very specifically on this podcast a couple of episodes ago, as you might recall. So uh, there's some very interesting history there. But the Nye Committee was there in the mid-1930s looking at the, the documentary record to find the ways that the munitions industry was really puppeteering United States foreign policy to involve America in military conflicts for their own wealth and prosperity, which I think is the very definition of corporatism. It's corporations using the government in order to enact the policies which will itself benefit the corporations. So it's a very interesting um, report, and let's just read a couple of sections of that report. For example, we can read the section, uh, section 3, their activities, that is the munitions industry activities, concerning peace efforts. Quote, The committee finds under this head that there is no record of any munitions company aiding any proposals for limitations of armaments, but that, on the contrary, there is a record of their active opposition by some to almost all such proposals, of resentment toward them, of contempt for those responsible for them, and of violation of such controls whenever established, and of rich profiting whenever such proposals failed. Now, the idea that the munitions companies are profiting from the uh, the wars and thus are in a position to not only further the idea of arms sales, but to ridicule anyone opposed to them, probably shouldn't be all that surprising. But at the very least, here we have it in black and white in this congressional committee finding, which is a nice piece of the documentary record for us to have under our belt and in our info war arsenal, isn't it? And the rest of that section goes on in some great degree of detail. Once again, I'll encourage you to read it for yourself, talking about the specific instances from the documentary record where it was found that the uh, the munitions industry was actively promoting militarism, actively working against the interests of peace. But uh, let's skip ahead to section five, talking about the relations between the corporations and the government, if there is any distinction to be made at the top level there. And in this report, section five is called their relations. Once again, that's the munitions industry relations with the United States government. Quote, the committee first under this head repeats its its report on naval shipbuilding in which the committee finds under the head of influence and lobbying of shipbuilders that the Navy contractors, subcontractors, and suppliers constitute a very large and influential financial group, and the committee finds that the matter of national defense should be above and separated from lobbying and the use of political influence by self-interested groups, and that it has not been above or separated from either of them. The committee finds further that the munitions companies have secured the active support of the war, Navy, commerce, and even state departments in their sales abroad, even when the material was to be produced in England or Italy. The committee finds that by their aid and assistance to munitions companies, the War, Navy, and Commerce Departments condone, in effect, in the eyes of those foreign officials cognizant of the details of the transactions, the unethical practices of the companies, which characterize their foreign sales efforts. The committee finds that the munitions companies have constantly exerted pressure on the War Department to allow the exportation of the most recent American improvements in warfare, and have usually been successful in securing it, 
and have also furnished plans of important new machines of war to their foreign agents in advance of any release by the War Department. The committee finds that the War Department encourages the sales of modern equipment abroad in order that the munitions companies may stay in business and be available in the event of another war, and that this consideration outranks the protection of secrets. General Ruggles was quoted, It was vastly more important to encourage the DuPont Company to continue in the manufacture of propellants for military use than to endeavor to protect secrets relating to their manufacture. The committee finds that as improvements are developed here, often with the cooperation of the military services, and these improvements presumably give the United States a military advantage, we are in the anomalous position of being forced to let other nations have the advantages which we have obtained for ourselves in order to keep the munitions manufacturers going, so that the United States can take advantage of the same improvements which its companies have sold abroad. End quote. Well, we'll leave that there. There's much more to this and much more detail to this report, which is why I will once again ask you to go and read the report for yourself. Again, a very interesting and very and very prescient document, document in a lot of ways that helped to coalesce a lot of the feeling of the general public at the time that the munitions industries were very much in collusion with the government at a, at a very high level in order to make war and the prospect of war more, uh, more likely, which was something that the American public was very much against at the time. They were still very much in the isolationist mentality. It meant, and I mean that in the positive sense, not in the sense that it's used as an aspersion today. The mentality, free trade with all, but binding alliances and entangling alliances with none, which of course was the founding philosophy of the American Republic dating back to the time of the revolution and the founding fathers. But somewhere along the line between that point and between where we are today, it suddenly flipped on its head so that we have these special binding alliances and uh, America is part of NATO and it, it's committing itself to protecting Israel above uh, any other consideration, no matter what Israel does or how it happens. And all of these other ways in which uh, America is very much 180 degrees from where it was at the time. Well, the Nye report is on the cusp of that transformation whereby the American public was being gradually indoctrinated into the uh, military adventurism, which it now takes as basically, oh, that must be the way America's always been. Well, it certainly wasn't. And in the wake of the Nye report, there were a series of acts passed and renewed in Congress on a yearly basis uh, that were basically committed to uh, to not transferring these this type of technology or selling these uh, these weapons as part of the business of the United States government. But well, how effective was that? Well, let's let's take a look and back up on what we were just talking about there from the report, because the report was noting the ways that manufacturers uh, who were based in the United States and who made their money in the United States were selling their war technologies, their weapons technologies, their munitions technologies to uh, foreign agents. Well, what does that mean? And what is, uh, what is the real history of this? This is where some of the most startling revelations come in about how the American corporations, which are really part of that corporatocracy whereby the corporations rule over and direct American foreign policy and American, the State Department, the War Department, as it was previously known, etc., as that report outlined. Well, all of these, uh, th these bodies were involved in the active transfer of technology to the people who were nominally the enemies of the United States, not just from the time of this Nye report in the mid-1930s, but extending forward in time and backwards in time as well to two of the biggest enemies of the 20th century, the Nazis and the, the Ruskies, the Bolsheviks, the Soviet Union. So in order to document this and how the American corporations played a role in all of that, let's turn to a talk by none other than Anthony Sutton. Let's go a little bit into the background of the financing of the German war machine that we fought in the period 1941 to 1945. Could we start, first of all, with the original financing of Hitler between 1922 and 1923, uh, 1923 when he was first making his effort to come into prominence in Germany? The original financing of Hitler, that's in the years 1922, came only partly from Germany. Uh, 
And one of the most prominent Americans concerned with financing Hitler was uh, Henry Ford. In fact, Henry Ford received a medal in 1938 for his assistance to the early Nazi party. Then, of course, Hitler had his attempted push in uh, 1923. He went to jail, and then we begin another era in the rise of Hitler. Right, and of course, he eventually came to power in 1933 uh, by the electoral process. What about the financing of Hitler's um, electoral activities in 1933? But this, this I can trace, I have traced it very exactly. I discovered uh, amongst the Nuremberg records a series of bank transfer slips um, to the Delbruck Schickler Bank in Berlin to an account which was under the control of Rudolf Hess. And this was the fund that was used to finance Hitler's access to power in March 1973. And amongst the corporations, uh, that transferred money to Hitler, I find not only R.G. Farben, which is, which is quite widely known, but also uh, German General Electric, AEG, which is under, under the control of General Electric in the United States, or was at that time, and com uh, companies like Osram and... Um, now, what was the tie-in between Osram and General Electric? The tie-in was a share tie-in. International General Electric in the United States had controlling interest in German General Electric and also through share interlocks, uh, a controlling interest in Osram in, in Germany. So then we have Ford and we have General Electric helping to finance Adolf Hitler's mm -hmm. rise to power. Mm -hmm. Were any other large American corporations involved? Uh, very definitely. Um, Standard Oil, through its uh, technical association with IG Farben, um, uh, for example, uh, Germany could not have gone to war in 1939 without uh, tetraethyl. You need tetraethyl to raise the octane value of aviation gasoline. Germany had no means of doing that. This was developed in the, um, in the ethyl uh, laboratories in the United States and transferred uh, to the Germans. Uh, Standard Oil came up with the hydrogenation idea, which was very essential for Germany in the 1930s because the, uh, to raise the quality of its gasoline for aviation purposes. This was transferred to the Nazis. And uh, ITT, for example, International Telephone and Telegraph, uh, was very intimately associated with the Nazis uh, through Dr. Schroeder, who was head of the um, ITT subsidiaries in uh, Germany. And ITT controlled companies which made not only um, um, electrical instruments, but also the Focke-Wulf plant, which made um, airplanes, uh, fighter airplanes. So what you're suggesting then is that American corporations were helping to finance the German industry that was building up the war potential? American corporations, only a few, not many, financed Hitler through their subsidiaries. They transferred technology, they transferred material assistance, for example, stocks of tetraethyl before the Germans could manufacture it under the joint manufacturing agreement with the United States. And also they financed this. For example, Standard Oil financed in 1933 the development of the um, gasoline industry in uh, Germany, which was needed to fight World War II. And that's a very interesting point. Could you go a little bit into the background of where Germany got its oil? to fight the Second World War, because certainly Germany doesn't have oil resources. Germany does not have oil resources, that's true. It uh, used in World War II synthetic oil, which it, did, which it uh, got from coal. And the basic technical processes for the development of oil from coal came from the United States, from uh, essentially from the Standard Oil Laboratories, which had this technical assistance agreement with IG Farben. And of course, IG Farben contributed uh, something like 60% of the explosives needed um, by the German Wehrmacht, uh, probably about 40-50% of the gasoline needed by the Wehrmacht and by the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe. Once again, that was Antony Sudden, and I hope my listeners will need no introduction to Sudden or his work, but for those who are encountering him for the first time, he was the author of several important groundbreaking studies, including Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler, and Wall Street and FDR. And he was a uh, member of the, the Hoover Institute, but he was basically forced out of his position after writing the Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution series. And he started to continue to persist in linking these corporations to some of America's biggest enemies, like the Nazis, as we just heard. Well, how about the Bolsheviks? How did they benefit from American corporations? 
And then after 1922-1923, Lenin instituted something known as the New Economic Policy, or this series of five-year plans. Can you tell us about the five-year plans and the part that the major American corporations, major world corporations, played in building up the Soviet Union? Well, there are two separate um phases here. The, the new, econ new economic policy was uh, started in 1923 by Lenin, and I found, and I published this in my first book from Stanford, that every single Russian industry was rebuilt or restarted by foreign corporations, mostly German, British, French, and American. By 1928, uh, Russia was back to approximately its 1913 um, in industrial output. And at that point, uh, she began to think of these grandiose five-year plans. And in 1928, Gosplan, which is the, the uh, Russian Government Planning Commission, actually designed an initial five-year plan. But this was thrown out, it was in inadequate, and American corporations were built in, uh, were, were brought into Russia. And the first five-year plan and the second five-year plan were actually designed in the United States by American corporations. And what were these corporations? Which ones specifically were involved? In the design of the um, first, first five-year plan was by a corporation probably not known to most Americans, Albert Kahn. But Albert Kahn was uh, the foremost industrial architect in the United States. And Albert Kahn laid out the basics of the first five-year plan for the Soviets. And then we find, again, the same corporations involved with the construction of the plants, International General Electric, certainly, uh, DuPont, Ford Motor, Hercules Motor, uh, Curtis Wright in aircraft engines, and even some corporations which today were forgotten about, like Valti and uh, Chance Vought. These were aircraft manufacturers at that time. And so American corporations came in and they built the first five-year plan. But what was important, the Soviets then copied these plans, and this accounts for the tremendous Russian output. They took this initial equipment and they multiplied it, they copied it by the hundred. Now, how about Ford Motor Company? Did they play a part in the building up of the Soviet potential? Uh, very definitely. Uh, Ford Motor Company built the Gorky plant, and the Gorky plant produces uh, the GAZ series of vehicles, that's G-A-Z, and these are trucks and uh, some automobiles. And uh, right from the early 1930s, you find that the GAZ plant has had military potential, and Ford knew that when it went in and built the Gorky plant. And we know it because I found statements to this effect within the State Department files. Sometimes we hear the name Averill Harriman. Did he play a part in building up the Soviet technology? Uh, very definitely. In fact, Averill Harriman uh, came out of the Soviet Union um, financially uh, at a profit. He took over the Georgian manganese concession in the early 1920s. He got this back on his feet for the Soviets, and manganese um, became a prime export for the Soviets, and so they were able to sell us abroad, get foreign exchange, which financed their industrialization. And uh, then they uh, bought out um, Harriman about 1929, and Abel Harriman uh, received his compensation $1 million more than he put in in the first place. How about Armand Hammer of Occidental Petroleum? Armand Hammer is a very interesting example. Um, Armand Hammer received the first foreign concession in 1922. Uh, in asbestos in the Ural Mountains. And uh, he also conducted for the Soviets a number of other enterprises, right down to pens and pencil manufacturing, for example. But Armand Hammer is interesting because his father, although Armand Hammer today is chairman of Occidental Petroleum Corporation, his father was Julius Hammer, who in 1919 was Secretary General of the Communist Party USA, which emphasizes the argument I made throughout my books, that at the top level, there's no difference between your top communists and your top capitalists, the interlink. You've got Armand Hammer, chairman of Occidental Petroleum. His father was secretary of the Communist Party USA in 1919. So it's basically a power grab. It's a power grab, and an international power grab. Absolutely fascinating, and one of the fascinating aspects of all of this is that I guarantee you never learned any of this history in history class, despite the fact that it's all been copiously documented in Antony Sutton's work. So I will refer you to Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Rev Revolution, Wall Street and FDR, to find out more about 
these very clear and very documentable linkages between the American corporatocracy and the rise of Hitler, the rise of the Bolsheviks. But of course, it raises the question of why? Why on earth would these capitalists be funding these socialist governments, the the national socialists in Germany or the, the Bolsheviks in Russia? Why would they be funding these? These are ideologically opposite, aren't they? The corporations, why on earth are they funding the socialists? Why do they want that system in place? Well, it's important to understand that there is a systemic balance that can be achieved, even from competing opposites at the lower level. At the higher level, there is a systemic balance that can be achieved, which can ensure the monopolization of the system for those who are funding both sides of the conflict. In order to make that point, let's go back to Antony Sutton. Now, why would an American capitalist, an American financier, help to aid Bolshevism? The only answer, and of course this puzzled me for years, you know, why? Why? Because we understand there to be an opposition. And the only answer I can come to is one of captive markets. The United States did not want another United States in the world. And of course, if you look at the world map, uh, Russia is uh, two or three times larger than the United States. Imagine this as another United States, as another competitor to the United States. What the United States wanted, or Wall Street wanted, was a captive market. And of course, socialism is a captive market because my earlier studies at Stanford University have brought out the fact that a socialist system cannot innovate. It's got to import innovation and technology from the West. And so I think the aim behind this was to encourage the development of Marxism and other, social, other types of socialism because this would give these Wall Street bankers control of a world market, a captive market. This is the type of three-dimensional chess that the people who are in charge of this system and in charge of the, the corporatocracy or such that it exists or, or any other way that you want to spin the current form of government, this is the type of three-dimensional chess they're playing while we're still playing checkers for the most part. And this is the type of nuanced thinking that would escape most people. But uh, once again, Anthony Sutton, I think, lays it out quite brilliantly in his works where he points out that uh, the corporate socialism played by the, the, the big corporations at the international level is in fact in their interest, despite the fact that it, socialism seems to run counter to the monopoly capitalist's interests, but it certainly isn't. It represents the culmination of that monopoly capital system, whereby the, the wealth of the nation is, is collectivized in the name of the greater good, but of course it just ensures the monopoly acquisition of wealth and the concentration of all of that collectivized wealth in the hands of the very few who are bringing it into existence and really puppeteering the system. And of course, that the anathema to that, the, the real and true antidote to that type of monopoly crony capitalism, which, is, which finds its culmination in the collectivization of wealth in the name of the greater good, is the true free market. And that's why they, that is the one thing that uh, the corporations are always against, because the big corporations thrive when their competition can be utterly stifled, because competition is the thing that would keep them honest, so to speak. This is a very big and very important point. And so let's transfer out of the distant past, talking about how this was enacted in generations past, and take a look at how it's specifically functioning today, because of course we're all interested in how the corporations really have their control over government in our current day and age. And this is something that is very much part of the political discourse in our current day and age, and it has been identified by a lot of people, especially those on the left, for example, in the Occupy movement, etc., talking about the, the ways that uh, corporate Corporations, corporate lobbying and corporate do dollars and donations and super PACs, etc., control the political process. And to a certain degree and to a certain extent, they are exactly right about that. But I think it also goes a bit further than what they're, the implications that they're drawing from all of this. So let's take a look at, a, a, I think, a fairly representative example of the way that this argument is generally put forward in our current political paradigm. Two hundred and thirty-six years ago, the Founding Fathers invented America. Before that, the closest thing we had to America was France. And that wasn't very American at all. We all know the Constitution those guys drafted wasn't perfect. They left out all kinds of important stuff. 
Yet, over time, we've come together to improve our Constitution. And today, 220 million Americans have the right to vote. But, after decades of political corruption, our votes don't count quite like they used to. Right before our eyes, they're being outmuscled by another form of political power. Money. These days, if you want something in Washington, there's a surefire way to get it. Throw a congressperson a fundraiser. Political campaigns are expensive, really expensive. Politicians are desperate to get their hands on the money they need to pay for their next campaigns and stay in office. They know that 94% of the time, the candidate who raises the most money wins. So they spend up to 70% of their days chasing cash instead of running the country. Like junkies who will do anything to find a fix. And only a handful of billionaires and big special interests put up the big bucks. Over 80% of presidential super PAC money has come from just 196 people. The way our system works, special interests get what they pay for. That's why pizza is now considered a vegetable in school cafeterias. Why three of the country's top 10 grossing companies paid zero federal taxes in 2009. And why certain industries have enjoyed a 77,000% return on one particular kind of investment. Their lobbying dollars. It's been this way for a while, but two years ago, it got worse. The Supreme Court decided a case called Citizens United making unlimited anonymous campaign donations the law of the land and taking our democracy from flawed but fixable to screaming self-parody. Before Citizens United, we could at least identify the people who were pumping cash into our politics. Today, we don't even know where half of it comes from. It could literally be anyone. Excellent. Add it all up and what have you got? Our politicians represent the money that bankrolls them, not the people who vote them into office. Meaning us. They don't represent us. It makes you wonder. If those guys who invented America were around right now, what would they do? They wouldn't sit on the sidelines and watch. They'd raise hell. So that's what we're doing. When the rich try to buy our lawmakers, when politicians sell out to lobbyists, we're going to make some noise. And we'll continue to make noise until politicians blocking reform are booted from office and unlimited and anonymous campaign donations are a thing of the past. We may not have billions of dollars, but we do have millions of people. And when we come together, we can ensure that our votes count exactly as much as they're supposed to. The Constitution's pretty clear about this. It's we the people, not it the money. If you want your democracy back, join us. And if you don't, don't worry, we'll get it back for you. Well, as I say, I think that's a fairly representative example of how the idea of the corporatocracy is presented to the public in our current day and age. And it's the idea of campaign financing and lobbying and how dollars influence the political process. And to the extent that it's uh, presented there, I, I do agree that all of those things are factors and they do play out in the way that is suggested in that video. But I think there's a much deeper underlying part to all of this. The, the real way that power is functioning in our society is not really uh, related to that political process so much as it is to a deeper underlying relation between the real power governing structures and the, the, the money interests. But, uh, but before we get into the, the critical analysis of that, let's, let's just back up with and, and examine how this plays out. So, for example, I don't think we can, we can say, I don't think anyone can say that there isn't an extent to which money equals governing power in our system, especially in the political system and in the political process. And what better way to demonstrate that point than by pointing out government sacks? Why have they been called government sacks? Goldman Sachs is called that because whether it's a Republican or a Democratic administration, if you look around, there's an amazing number of senior people that have come from the Goldman Sachs background. And because they seem to act in a way that is very good for Goldman Sachs and not very good for the country. It's a joke. You know who owns America? You don't. Your vote is unimportant, Joe. You don't even count. You know who owns America? 
a few at the top, and they got one thing in mind, no change. Look at Obama, all that hope and promise, no changes. He's running for re-election barely halfway through his term a year ago, and so what did he say? I'm going to raise a billion dollars. Well, guess who the president's raising from? The very banks he's supposed to regulate. He went to Wall Street, had a fundraiser, $35,800 a ticket, and you know who the host was? Goldman friggin' Sachs. <laughs> Key European crisis figures Mario Draghi, Lucas Papademos, and Mario Monti all have backgrounds with government Sachs. Critics in Europe are very uneasy about the new Italian ECB chief, the Greek premier, and the prime minister-designate of Italy's past and present relations with the Goldman Sachs Bank. It is seen by many as among the most political firms on Wall Street. It was dubbed Government Sachs in the U.S., as many of its staff have held high-level U.S. government jobs. Max, if I could start with you. I mean, what is it about Goldman Sachs? How does it manage to, to turn the figures around like that? Well, Goldman Sachs are scum. I mean, that's the bottom line. Uh, they basically have co-opted the uh, U.S. government. They've co-opted the Treasury Department, the Federal Reserve functionality. Uh, they've co-opted the Obama administration. Barack Obama, uh, you know, dances to Goldman Sachs tune. And they are really crooked and abominable in what they've done. Uh, you just remember Hank Paulson held Congress hostage, took him in the back room and said, give us $700 billion. We're going to crash this market. He's an arsonist. He's, he's an outlaw. And yet he's given You've praise. Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson, who was CEO at, uh, at uh, Goldman Sachs. Sure, but if you go down the list, they're all Goldman Sachs scum, whether it's Hank Paulson, whether it's uh, Geithner has very close ties to Goldman Sachs, and of course all these banking uh, bonuses are paid out to all their cronies who are Goldman Sachs scum, and America for some reason has allowed this coup d'etat to take place, a silent coup d'etat, where the Goldman Sachs and their friends now control the U.S. government and they are manipulating well, as I say, I don't think there's a better example of how money equals power in the current political paradigm than government sacks. And we can very much see in the American political system and context how the government sacks, Goldman Sachs money is used to basically purchase various parts of the government and uh, purchase various people in positions uh, so that uh, ex-Goldman employees end up in all sorts of very key strategic positions, whether it's deputy treasury secretary or uh, head of the CFTC or whatever else. There always seems to be an ex-Goldman figure in the picture. So once again, the collusion between corporations and government at that level, very much ap apparent, and certainly Goldman Sachs, a, a shining example of it. But I think that the the potential problem with things like that video that we just watched, although I do agree with what they're saying to the extent that they're saying it, but it does lead one into that paradigm whereby the the problem isn't the, the system itself. The problem is that just somehow through some contingency or other, things have, uh, have degenerated to this point where the corporations have kind of bought out political power. And if we can just get the right politicians in power to make the right laws and inv invoke the right regulations, then then we can make everything better again and get those corporations out of power. I don't think it's as simple as that, and I think it, the problem goes much deeper than that, because the pro part of the problem is that time and time again, the regulations that are meant to regulate various industries are, of course, drafted by the corporations themselves. That is what's really insidious about the corporatocracy system is that the corporations can use the mask of government to regulate their own industries and then of course through selective enforcement and through selectively and, and carefully worded regulations etc they can find themselves exempt from those regulations while their com their competition is regulated out of existence this is part of that regulation trap that we were talking about on the podcast earlier this year and I hope you'll go back and listen to that episode for more on this, but but let's just take a, a, a short example and listen to how corporations are always behind the regulations that are meant to regulate their industries and how this combination of corporation and power, government power, is what's really underlying the corporatocracy system. Uh Gabriel Kolko was named. Uh, I want to. I think um, Butler mentioned him. I want to talk a little bit about Kolko and Stigler. Uh, Stigler had this thing called capture theory, 
What was capture theory? Capture theory was a theory of regulation where initially uh, you have, say, the Food and Drug Administration or the Meat Inspection Act or something like that. And the reason we have that is because you know, capitalists can't be trusted, they're fraudulent, they're invasive, they're, they're bad guys. So we have, the have to have the government to come in and regulate them. The problem is that the regulators don't make as much of a salary as the vice presidents of the regulatee. And if they regulate them in a nasty way, they can't later get a job there. <laughs> so they have to regulate them in a nice way. Namely, they get captured by the very people that they're supposed to be regulating. And if you look at the careers of some of these, they start off as a low-level bureaucrat, they get a middle job in private industry, they get a higher job in the, in the bureau, and then they get a much higher job, sort of a revolving door. That's the Stigler theory. Uh, pretty good. It's got some truth. But the Colco theory is much better. The Colco theory, I think, was called the triumph of conservatism, where he shows that right from the get-go, right from the outset, the impetus for regulation did not come from uh, aggrieved consumers or, or any of that, nor did it come from small competitors. It came from the big companies like Swift and Armour and Meatpacking. They were the ones that wanted the regulation. Why? You might say, well, why? According to the Ayn Rand view, you know, th this is hard to explain. The reason is that the large meat packers were losing market share to the small ones. And they didn't much like that. The free enterprise wasn't all it's cracked up to be if these uh, lowlifes are taking our markets away. So they came up with this ingenious idea. Let's have government regulation. We, the biggies, have economies of scale in, in filling out paperwork. So anytime there's a law or regulation, we can do it cheaper than they can, so we now have a competitive advantage over them. And secondly, who do you think is going to staff those bureaus? The people who are going to staff those bureaus are from us because we're setting it up in the first place. And so it is that I think we have to be careful of being led down that garden path where if we can just get behind the right politician and kick those rascals out of office and get our side in, then we can invoke the right rules and regulations through a force of government in order to make sure those pesky corporations go away. I think we have to be fundamentally wary of that proposition because, for one, it implies that the real power is in government itself. But the government, I think, if anyone has been listening to this podcast for any length of time, government in terms of the politics in Washington, D.C., the Obamas and Clintons and whoever else, whatever puppets may be in power this week, are really the window dressing on the fundamental underlying power structure in our society, which functions through a series of organizations that uh, either present themselves openly or don't present themselves openly are out there on in the open in public or are to some extent in secret. So we can think, for example, of the Bilderberg Group. That's an example of corporatocracy in a very literal coming together of some of the biggest corporations and CEOs and chieftains, uh, corporate chieftains in the world with literal figures of uh, heads of state and people in political power and royalty, etc., for the real governing Congress of the uh, the world government. And, uh, and so Bilderberg is a perfect example of that. And of course, what they talk about and what they discuss and what conclusions they come to is all secret. It's off the record and no one is allowed to report on it. So that's an example of what corporatocracy really looks like. And there's nothing, there's no politician that anyone is going to vote into office that will get rid of Bilderberg or, or organizations like that somehow because they're not officially government. They, they have nothing to do with the official governing power structures and yet that's where decisions are being made that do affect and influence world events. So, uh, so, for example, Bilderberg is a perfect example of that. But there are a number of organizations out there that function in similar ways, and one that has been well-known and well-publicized for decades now, and perhaps was more influential back a few decades ago, was the Trilateral Commission, founded by David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski. We've talked about the Council on Foreign Relations time and again on this podcast, and we've talked about how they've been uh, very fundamental in a lot of the uh, driving foreign policy since the 1920s when it was founded. But it's important to understand that 
CFR is very much composed of its corporate members, its corporate membership roster, which is openly published on its website. So I'll invite you to go there and take a read through. So the founders of the uh, corporate members of the CFR are Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Chevron Corporation, ExxonMobil, Goldman Sachs, Hess Corporation, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co., McKinsey & Company, and the NASDAQ OMX Group. Then there's the President's Circle with Alcoa, American Express, Barclays, Citibank, Credit Suisse, Guardsmart, Guardsmark LLC, MetLife, Moody's, Lockheed Martin, Omnicom, Parsons, Shell Oil, Standard Chartered Bank. Uh, they've got premium uh, members, Ace Limited, Bank of New York Mellon Corporation, Blackstone Group, uh, CIT Group, you've got Control Risks Group, uh, Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, GlaxoSmithKline, Northern Trust, Northrop Grumman, Walmart, Xerox Corporation, Zephyr Management, etc., etc. You have associates like AARP, Bank d'Italia, Hemispheric Partners, Japan Bank for International Corporation, Cooperation, and Oxford Analytica. Uh, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of corporate members that really are underlying the Council on Foreign Relations, this supposedly neutral body which comes along and comes out with these foreign policy statements and uh, positions that suddenly the State Department adopts. Wow, funny how that works. Or you have uh, this uh, relatively newer group called the International Crisis Group, which is going around the world in these various uh, crises that are taking place in Libya or Syria or in the, uh, the uh, South China Sea, etc., etc., who are coming out with these reports feigning to tell the world how basically to resolve these international crises. And uh, when you start to look at the crisis group, well, who funds it and who supports it? Well, they have the uh, institutional foundations and uh, international advisory council, and you have what what kind of corporations on the uh, the boards of of the international crisis group well of course you have the carnegie Cor corporation and the rockefeller brothers fund etc etc the foundational institution but you also have uh, corporations and companies like uh, anglo american plc apco worldwide um there's uh, shell oil and uh, other oil companies are are part of this uh uh, Chevron, BP, etc., etc. Um, so there is very much a corporate element to this. Kimberly Clark Corporation, Veritas Cap uh, Vester Capital Partners, etc., etc. Once again, I'll go let you go read that. And this is really just skimming the top. These are just some of the uh, the bodies that are working out there in the open. But we can point to these types of structures: the the International Crisis Group, the Council on Foreign Relations, Bilderberg, Trilaterals, etc., etc., as parts of the the real governing process that represent the real government of America, of various states around the world, that is taking place behind the scenes of the facade of what's happening in Washington. So people can get angry and march on Washington and try to kick the bums out and vote in a bunch of other politicians that will do their bidding, when behind the scenes you have all of these corporate members of these groups which are producing these papers which in get ad adopted as foreign policy or as domestic policy in the various departments of government. That is what corporatocracy looks like in our current day and age, in our current political context. There are corporations behind the scenes that draft the bills, that draft the policy statements, etc., that are then adopted by their puppets in Washington. And the answer to this, if you ask me as a voluntarist, is clearly not more government, stronger government, more government regulations, voting the right people into positions of power. The point is to take those positions of power away. And I think the ultimate ideal is to not have government at all, because then government cannot be used as that means for collectivizing the wealth through which the corporate crony capitalists can basically snarf up that entire trough in the name of uh, that, that's been created in the name of the greater good. But that's a slightly different argument. The point at what we can affect in our own personal, private, daily lives, day to day, is that once again, these corporations still depend on you for your business, for your dollars, for your involvement, for your participation in their economy. So that, for example, you're not going to personally take down Shell or BP or any of these other big corporations, but you can at the very least ensure that your dollars are not going directly to these corporations by taking yourself off of their corporate control grid in every and any way possible. And until we realize that the responsibility and the onus really is on us as individuals to get off of this corporate control slave grid that they've constructed for us, and we have to start 
taking it back into our own hands and getting off the grid in every way possible in order to build up the communities and to get off of the corporate structure, then we are ourselves supporting this corporatocracy. So it's important to not take away our own personal responsibility for what's going on and to deflect that into oh, what's happening in Washington or in your local capital. It's not about that. It's about what the ways that you are participating in this system and the ways that you are supporting and underlying the corporate Corporatocracy, which very much is in positions of power in this day and age. And once again, that's not to limit or to describe the totality of the power structure as merely corporatocracy. I, I think that's just one key element of what's happening, but it is a key element and it is one where we do have power because we do vote with our dollars each and every day. Every time you buy a product, you are voting for that company, that corporation, and everything they are involved in. So if we are not making those choices completely consciously and with the knowledge that we are supporting whatever is underlying those corporate interests, then we are doing a disservice to ourselves and to future generations who are we, we are condemning to servitude in the corporate slave state. Well, on that note, that's all the time we have for today. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. This land was your land, but now it's their land, with names like Bechtel and Halliburton. They don't represent us, not democratic. This land's a cool.